Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Doug Espy, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Restoration Church. And I have the privilege of taking us back to the Gospel of John. We've been there for a number of months, and we've actually taken a couple of weeks' break during Easter. And now I have the challenging task of catching everyone up. It's a bit like, you know, when you watch a movie or a documentary, and halfway through, and then you don't watch it for a couple of weeks, and then you go back to it, and you're like, oh, what's happening again? That's where we are as a church. If you want a quick catch-up, where we are is that Jesus has just performed, um, arguably, his greatest miracle prior to the resurrection. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, such an extreme miracle also provokes an extreme reaction from the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And they now want to kill Jesus because he is becoming more popular than them. And he is getting more people's attention and more ears are swiveled in his direction than in theirs. They're losing power. So behind closed doors, the Pharisees begin to plot. Murder is in the air. And that's where we were left at the end of last time. Right now, we find Jesus in the middle of an unofficial but very real manhunt that's occurring. These leaders were planning on how to kill him. And you can almost imagine the whispers that they had behind closed doors in a planning meeting. How are we going to get him? How are we going to get this Jesus guy? What's the best way to do this? Maybe we'll hire an assassin who will track and kill Jesus. Maybe quickly in a crowd with a knife. Maybe from a second story with a bow shot. Quick, simple, fast. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll make Jesus disappear, like so many other regimes have done since. Where one day you see Jesus, the next day no one knows where he is. No one knows what happens. All you knew is that men knocked on the door that night. And that we could get rid of him that way. Or perhaps maybe a third Pharisee pipes up and he says... No, 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 we can do this. We can do this in broad daylight. Think this. Think about it. When Jesus is on the road, let's make sure that him and his disciples encounter some bandits who only leave one or two alive, who limp back to the nearest city, and who talk about just how unsafe the roads are nowadays. Maybe we could do it that way. That's the sort of plotting and planning that's in the air. Jesus hears about this. And he and his disciples move from Bethany, which is where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, live. He gets out of there and he goes to a tiny village that's only mentioned once, to the best of my knowledge, in the Bible, a village named Ephraim. It's out of the way. It's next to the wilderness. It's a real bush town where no one ever goes. And Jesus and his disciples move there to get away from the planning and from the hate until the heat wears off. Maybe that's part of the idea. But you see, the clock is ticking. And it's only a couple of days before Passover. And Jesus knows that he only has a couple of days left to live. And he's not going to spend it at this remote outpost. What's he going to do? Well, he decides to spend his last couple of days alive with his friends. He goes back to Bethany. Now, many of us don't realize, I certainly didn't realize, how risky this was until I started actually looking at a map. Bethany is about three kilometers away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem 
is the center, the hub, the lair, if you will, of where the religious leaders live. It's their power base. And he's going to go to a town three kilometers away. Now, it's a bit like, uh, say, Withcott to Toowoomba distance, from here to the Blue Mountain Hotel. Now, start running the maths on this one. Let's just say in Bethany that there's someone in there who sees Jesus and they're pro-Pharisee. Run the maths. It's probably a one-hour quick walk in 3Ks, one-hour quick walk to Jerusalem, half an hour to gather some soldiers with the Pharisees' permission, then an hour to get back there. If you're on the Pharisees' hit list, that's two and a half hours from when you're initially spotted until you're done. That's the risk you're running. That's the sort of stakes they're playing with. But Jesus goes back. He goes back to Bethany and this town is now surging with people. Because remember, it's only a few days from Passover. And you've got to get through Bethany to get to Jerusalem. So it's surging with strangers. Strange peoples with strange motives. They're swirling in this area. And Jesus goes back. People begin to find out. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus also find out. And when they find out that their friend, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, is returning with his disciples, they decide to nail their colors to the mast. They say, no, we're not going to be scared. We're not going to have some midnight rendezvous with Jesus and his disciples somewhere and have a quick catch-up. No, we're going to have a feast. We're going to have a public dinner. And they actually enlist a bloke called Simon the leper to allow them to run a big dinner at his place for Jesus and the disciples. No fear. And I love that sort of joyful defiance, that joyful defiance in the face of hate and fear. That's what they have. And you can imagine Mary and Martha, they go for a walk down to the shopping centers, so to speak, and they would probably go to the um, storeholders that they've bought food from all their adult lives. And they start to stack up with food, stack up. And the shopkeepers know something's going on because no one walks around with this much food, just for a normal meal. And you can imagine them like, oh, so Mary and Martha, you've got a big night coming, right? You guys are doing something big. You sure do, they'd say, maybe with a smile or a wink. And off they would walk. And they go back home and they begin to prepare this lavish feast for Jesus and his disciples at Simon's place. Now, what does this dinner look like? Well, look at the number of people coming. Lazarus, Martha, Mary, Simon, Jesus, 12 disciples. That's 17 people. They're running a dinner for 17 people. Um, has anyone here ever ran a, a number of like a dinner with that level of people before in your house? Just a rough guess in this room. I know, I know we had the brunch families a while back. It looks like the majority of us haven't. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people to feed. And they're doing it. And how they run it and how they're going to pull it off is same, same, but different to the way that you would. Come with me for a moment and have a look at their home. If you were to walk into their place, just as they were setting up, you would notice chairs and tables that we all would recognize, but they're all pushed to the side on this particular night, because chairs and tables are for normal meals. Um, when you have a normal, generic dinner, um, you use chairs and tables like we do today in the 21st century. 
But there, they push them to the side, and for big feasts, you pull out, now get ready for this, the feasting couches. The feasting couches. Now, these couches are about maybe this high. So about my knee, for those of you who may not be able to see. About here, off the ground. And they set up these feasting couches, and everyone gets one. Laban's going to get one. Graham's going to get one. Um, Barry's going to get one. Everyone gets a feasting table, unless you're a woman. Sorry, women. Um, They all get a feasting lounge, and it's all set up in a big U shape. Right? And then, in between the feasting couches, or near the feasting couches, is another big U of tables that are, again, about this low. And you basically... It's like a sushi train that doesn't move. Um, You basically lie there on your lounge with one hand here and the other hand grabbing your food off the table. And the very generous women folk will go around and they'll make sure that the meals keep coming. You've got about seven courses of food, which I love as an idea. Um, There's about seven courses of food. And if you're the honoured guest, which Jesus was that night, you would get special portions of it all. So that's the setup. And that's how they're going to go. And you can imagine that eventually the time comes. All the lounges are ready. All the feast is there. And now there's just that you know, nervous time when you're waiting for someone to rock up. And they're just waiting. Double checking everything. Feasting. Check, 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 check. Did you put that? Yep, you did. Good, thanks. Check. And then you look out the window and there they are. They're coming. Coming down the proverbial driveway. There's the knock at the door. Again, 17 people knocking at the door. Knocking at the door. Also, hey, hey, you know how it is. Hey, come on in, come on in. And everyone begins to stream on through. And how was it? How was the trip? You guys were safe? Any trouble? Whoa. Wow, you guys did a really good job in here. You know how it is. Some things never change. Oh, this is great. You've done wonderful. Smells good, Mary. All that sort of thing. And they would begin to set up lying on their lounges, sort of east eating like the Romans would, you know, with the grapes. That's the image you need to have in your head because that's how they ate. My mum told me to never eat food while I lay down, but that's, that's how they did it back then. Now, as they were eating, I reckon the mood would be joyful and a fair bit rowdy because you've got 15 blokes in that room, um, probably mostly under 35. So there's going to be some banter. There's going to be some, some back and forthing. Um, and there's going to be some phenomenal food surrounded by great mates who are united in a common purpose. And the food just keeps on coming. More than that, if you were a fly on the wall and you could see the conversation, check out Simon. Remember how I said Simon was called Simon the leper? Well, it's because he was a leper. But he can't be a leper anymore. Because lepers were excommunicated, were cut off from society. So that's not Simon the leper, that's actually Simon the former leper, as a number of people have pointed out. He's actually Simon the former leper. And he's probably lying very close to Lazarus, who was the former dead man. So I would love to hear these conversations going on in this room. And you see, our church, and indeed church in general across the world, is kind of like this scene. You've got healed and transformed people and those who are just, you know, checking it out. They're all there together, just like we are all here in this room together. And yet also just like that dinner, church produces Judas's and Mary's 
in the same room as well. Now just hold on to that thought for a moment. As the conversation ebbs and flows, you notice that Mary begins to be a bit distracted. Her heart's beginning to beat a little faster and she's thinking in her head, is now the time? Should I do it now? Now, maybe what, she was about, what she's about to do is something she's thought on for hours and hours, days even, before this event. Maybe it just came to her a few minutes ago. But regardless, she eventually plucks up the courage. She leaves the conversation that she probably wasn't focusing too much on anyway. She stands up, takes a deep breath, goes over and grabs an alabaster jar. Now, the moment she grabs that, people will begin to notice. Because you see, this alabaster box would be well known by any Jewish person back then because it's a very special container, custom container for a very special thing. Inside of it is pure nard. Now, nard is a, it's like a perfume that comes from Arabia and India, okay? Google Earth this later on if you want. The distances are phenomenal. It's from Arabia or from India. It's distilled from this particular plant and it goes on camelback for potentially thousands of dusty kilometers before it reaches Bethany. It's worth roughly a year's wages. So for the average Aussie, you're looking at a woman carrying a jar worth anywhere between fifty to $70,000 Australian. And, she, and everyone's watching as she walks with that. Everyone's watching. And I'm sure she's being as careful as possible with this. Where does she get it from, Bart? I mean, the text doesn't tell us where she got it from. Maybe she was from a wealthy family. Maybe it was a family heirloom. Maybe it was something that Mary basically invested her life savers into. We don't know. All we know that it's hers and that she's bringing it to the table. And everyone's watching as she gets closer and closer. The conversations have trailed off. And she walks up to Jesus and she breaks the top of the jar. Now, there's half a litre of perfume in there. That's 500 mil. That's not those tiny little ones you often see on the shelf. This is a, this is a heavy thing. She breaks it and she anoints Jesus' head with it, right? And she will mix it in. Now, that's weird for me. I don't understand that. But it's a very big deal in a lot of cultures, even to this day, of anointing the head. So she anoints his head and literally thousands of dollars is, are like flowing through her fingers right now. Tens of thousands of dollars are flowing through her fingers as she needs it through Jesus' hair. And this is quite common. This is something you would often do if a guest came to your place. But not like this. The cheap perfume. Not the expensive one. And then she goes over to Jesus' feet. And she pours the rest of it on Jesus' feet. And that, that's totally different. Because that is not what normally happens at a banquet if you're one of the hosts. That's what servants do. But she's now kneeling down and she's anointing Jesus' feet. And she begins to dry and wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. That is another big social, what are you doing? Because a woman's hair in Jewish culture, does, it almost never gets unbound or uncovered in public. But she does. And she uses her hair in that way. And it's a sign of incredible personal 
close devotion to someone. It's beautiful. It's shocking. It's, it's startling. It's all of these things at once as she does this for Jesus. Now, after a while, though, the, the like shocked, awkward social silence begins to fade out. And you begin to hear words in the room. There's murmuring. There's a bit of mumbling. And if you listen closely enough, you can actually hear a tinge of anger in some of the voices there. Some of the guests begin to murmur louder and louder. And eventually, Judas says what a number of the disciples were thinking. Judas says, and from this second onwards, the entire night is just, I'm not going to say ruined, but it's, it's entirely changed. Judas says, why wasn't that ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's condemning her. He's calling it out. Why was that not sold for 300 denarii and give to the poor? And there's a murmur of agreement from some of the other disciples in the room. But sadly, we read this and we discover that's not because Judas actually had a love for the poor. We discover as we read in John that Judas was a thief. He was a very skilled thief. And in an incredibly oxymoron way, he was a good, trusted thief. Because you see, the disciples had a communal money bag. They had a wallet that all of their monies went into. And Judas was told to be in charge of it. He was that trusted. But the Bible also says that he regularly took out money from the money bag for himself. He's a snake. He's an unrepentant thief. And deep down, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he did it anyway. In fact, if you want to really push this pretty hard, Judas knew the Ten Commandments. He's Jewish, remember? Do not lie. Do not steal. He would know his Proverbs, which are full of Proverbs warning against greed. He'd walked with Jesus for the last three years, and he'd had countless face-to-face mentoring conversations with Jesus. Countless. And yet he chose to be an unrepentant thief. And Judas refuses to listen to the voices of his past, of his boyhood. Nor will he listen to the voice of the Son of God in the present. He will nod his head. And you've seen this before. He will nod his head to Christian teaching. All the while blocking his ears. There is only one voice Judas listens to. Greed, it whispers to him constantly, persistently. It whispers. It's whispering to him now, and he hears it. If only the money from that gift went in the bag. If only the money from that gift went in the bag. One commentator rightly said that Judas genuinely believed that that money bag, that inanimate object, had more of a claim of his allegiance than Jesus Christ. What a scene before us. What a scene in that land room that night. Right in front of us, there is the gulf between darkness and light, between the thoughts of hell and the thoughts of heaven. 
and they exist within meters of one another. Meters of one another. You can see the eyes of loving faith, and you can see the, uh, the vision of those whose eyes have been bleached blind by greed. It's all there in this moment. Let me make it personal for you. Let me see where you stand on this particular one. What do you ask yourself? Are you someone who sees significant generosity towards the things of God as an idea for other people at best, for the Marys of the world, for the people you read about in the ministry newsletters or in the testimonies pages? Do you see significant generosity as something at best for them, for them? Or at worst, something that you very quietly shake your head at about how foolish religious people would be who would waste their money on such causes? Does your love for the happiness that you think money will buy you jaundice your vision so badly that you cannot see the greater gift of God's call and of God's kingdom and of following Jesus? And living a devoted, generous life. Are your eyes that jaundiced? I don't think it's black and white. I think most of us have a sort of half vision, a sort of um, sort of a cataract of greed that slowly begins to fester over our eyes. Because you see, Judas didn't go from synagogue Sunday school to betrayer of the Son of God in one hit, in in one moment where he woke up. No, it's a lifestyle. It's the reeling in, it's the hook of greed in his lips that he refused to take out, that he just kept following, that he kept believing. It's the poison of greed pumping through his heart that he refused to apply the antiseptic of God's word to. And so he transformed. And so he deformed into the man with the perspective that you hear about tonight, on this particular night. We need to stand firm against that love for money. I hope you can see that. We need to stand firm against the love of money. Um, John Piper rightly pointed out that Jesus warned against it, Paul warned against it, and Judas demonstrated it. He proved it. Because you see, unbeknownst to Judas, he would be dead in a few days' time. The greed that he allowed to flow from his heart had blinded his eyes to who Jesus was, and to even to who Judas was anymore. And the path that he is on is a path that ends at the end of a rope. He had shipwrecked his faith. And sadly, the greed he had nurtured so carefully in his heart will, in just a few days' time, parasitically suck him dry and leave him suicidally despondent. But he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. Do you? Do you? You've seen greed in other people's lives. We all have. But can you see it in your own? Or are you letting that parasite pump poison more and more into your interactions with God and with those around you? We have to be aware of this. We have to be aware. In fact, I had a friend once, um, and we're still friends, and I saw this takeover happen in real time. Um, he and I went to uh, TCC together, um, the school, um, and he was and is a phenomenal worker. 
Um, he very quick. He started off in a particular job. He very quickly rose to the top. He is a tradie. He became a self con- like a contractor, basically self-employed. I've never met a man to this day who can work as hard as him. Just pumping out 15, 16 hour days. Boom, 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 boom. Um, six, seven days a week sometimes. Just insane. Uh, doing incredibly difficult manual labor that few people do. Uh, he was so successful that by the time he was in his early, twi- no, early to mid-20s, he had his own yacht, right? That the bank would give him a yacht because of the amount of money he was raking in. And um, I, I noticed very quickly the changing in the way when he'd come to church with me and the way we'd talk about Jesus. And eventually I saw that something very serious was going on here, that a, a new God was whispering and was vying for his allegiance. And I sat down with him and his brother. And I remember one day when we were yakking in his land room, I was like, hey man, you know, I love you to bits, but I'm really, I'm really worried that money is becoming, is your Jesus right now. That money is what you're all about. And I want to encourage you, man. Maybe I'm off, maybe I'm off, but I just want to encourage you just to trust Jesus and let him be your number one. Um, set your life up in line with God's priorities and be the generous guy that I know you can be and have been in the past. And he, and he sat and he listened, and which I'm very thankful for. And at the end, he's like, thanks, Doug. But no, I'm, I'm not going to be changing anything. And his brother was the same. He's like, no, we're not going to change. We're not. But we appreciate it. You know, you're, you're a good friend, but no, nothing's changing. All right, man, you know, I'll still love you no matter what, but I just wanted to, you know, share with you my heart. He's like, that's cool, that's cool. And um, then after a while, he moved away. He's now got his own business. He's got heaps of staff. He's got a fleet of vehicles, all sorts of things. And, um, but a few years ago, he caught this, like, life-threatening virus. This is pre-COVID, but this extremely healthy um, bloke who would easily be a cover person for a, a gym membership advertisement, he caught this virus and it messed him up bad, so bad, they stuck him in an isolation ward um, up where he lives. And um, he began texting me and messaging me. And he's telling me, like, hey, man, I've really been thinking about Jesus a lot lately. And, and you know, and he told me the story about what happened to him. And I, um, and I shared with him, yeah, that's, I'm really sad to hear what's happened. I really hope and pray, mate, that you and Jesus, like, you pursue him once more. Because by this stage, my friend has a wife and a child. And I'm like, yeah, I really want to encourage you in that place. And I really want to encourage you to charge in there. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, nah, man, reading the Bible, like getting really serious. And then a few days, well, a few, I think a month later, he got released. And from what I see on Facebook and from what I hear in conversations, it's just back to, back to business for him. It was just a, yeah, Jesus is important. But now I'm out of hospital. It's, it's back to where I was. Money is calling. Or Jesus is calling, and it's spelt M-O-N-E-Y. And that's a story. It's a sad story. It's not over yet, which I, I thank God for. And I ask and I pray as often as I remember, God, please step into that space. But greed is real. It's very, very real. So how does Jesus react to all this? Let's skip back a bit to him. How is Jesus going to react? Because he has the vision that can see the heavenly and the hellish gulf within a few meters of one another. How is Jesus going to react? Jesus looks at them and he says, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's break that down together because there is so much in those couple of sentences that I reckon would have shocked the room into silence. Firstly, I don't know about you, but the part that caught me was where it says, the poor you'll always have with me, but you will not always have me. Is Jesus being callous to the poor? No. We've all read our Bibles. You can't read the Bible long and before long, you'll see that God has a huge heart for the poor. That's not what it's getting at. Jesus loves the poor far more than everyone in this room combined. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say that the poor are always around, but the time is short for Mary to show her devotion to Jesus. He's going to be dead in a few days' time. Time is short. In fact, a number of commentators have said this was a now or never moment for Mary. This is a now or never moment for Mary. So that's what Jesus means when he's saying those things. When he says this business about when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. He's pointing out that what she's doing is actually symbolizing what's going to happen in a few days time. It's a powerful object lesson because Jews would pour perfume on dead bodies to stop the stench before they buried them. So she's doing a symbolic, almost prophetic act right there in front of them. And lastly, it says, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. He's right. (laughs) You're hearing about it right now on a whole other continent. 2,000 years later, yet again, Jesus is right. In memory of her, as Jesus promised, I'm sharing with you. And in a very real sense, that smell of that fragrance filled the room and the world. This fragrance produces different reactions back then, and it produces different reactions now. If you want to follow Mary's example, like bringing it home to here and now, if you want to follow her example in your own 21st century way, if you want to acknowledge his goodness with your lips and with your bank account and with your watch, someone's going to notice. Someone's going to notice when you live such a radically countercultural life. Some people are going to scoff at your gullible religious spending and they're going to tell you about all the corrupt um, religious institutions that they've read about and how they would never go down that path. Because you know what happens. Others will tell you at your workplace or in your family dinners that, okay, that's cool, you know, you do you. But we all know what that means, right? You do you. Yep. But others are going to notice, and others are going to ask questions. And it's been like that for a long, long time. It's going to make waves. And in fact, Christians have been making waves now for about 2,000 years in that space. Um, You look at the early Christians, when it came to deformed or unwanted babies, the Romans would just take them away from mum, the dad would look at the baby, and if it was deformed or unwanted in any way, dad would walk outside. I, I don't want to imagine this scene in my head, especially if there were small children around, but dad would walk outside 
And he would walk for a long time, somewhere desolate, and then he'd put the baby down and he'd walk back to the house. The baby dies of exposure. Christians came across these babies and they saw in these squalling infants the image of God with the cleft lip, with the club foot, with the deformity or the unwantedness of being female or any other disgusting, dehumanizing way of seeing people. And these Christians would literally lift these babies up in more ways than one and look after them and care for them. And it transformed the Roman Empire. Flash forward, um, many, many centuries in the future, the Moravians, um, they were known for saying that they would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery if that's what it took to get the gospel into closed lands, in lands where Christians weren't allowed. Okay, well, I'm going to sell myself into slavery then. And I'm going to share with the slaves and my master about Jesus. Even flash forward to modern day, um, one of the things I read about just recently was a number of missional church plants um, have Christians who, in I think San Francisco is one place, it's a big deal in the States right now, that Christians will leave their church and leave their communities and they'll move into low socioeconomic disadvantaged communities where there's gun violence, where there's drug use, where there's gangs, and they'll move in there and they'll share the gospel. They'll live next door to the drug dealers on purpose because they want to incarnate the love of Jesus. Yeah, there's no Christian schools around. Yeah, this is not how I envisage raising my kids. But these people around me matter and the gospel matters. So me and 10 other of my brothers and sisters are moving here. We're starting a church and we're going to see the gospel change this gun-ridden neighborhood. That's what they do. That's what we do. And that's what this sort of Mary-like devotion instantiated in the 21st century can look like. Now that's over there. You've got your own context. What does Mary-like devotion look like for you? Ask yourself, if you're a mum of five kids, if you're a grandpa, if you're a teenager and you're about to finish school soon, what does Mary-like gutsiness, Mary-like level of devotion look like in my life? And do it. It's really, that's it. Do it. Find out what it looks like and do it. Because you can. The Christians before you did it, the Christians around you are doing it. And God willing, the Christians in front of you in the next few years will do it as you set the standard and set the example. That's what Jesus is calling you to. That's what Jesus is calling you to. As the night wrapped up, and as this sermon wraps up as well, the guests would have left. The Bible doesn't talk about this, but we know the guests would have left this dinner. And I think the handshakes and the hugs as they walked out the door would have felt very different from when they first walked in. I don't know whether some of the disciples apologized to Jesus uh, and, and to Mary. I don't know whether Judas just closed his mouth and just walked out the door refusing to look at Mary. I, I don't know. But we do know that everyone left. And the disciples walked out of there with a valuable life lesson. Because while they may not have been greedy, um, they were ignorant and they learned something that day. We know that Judas walked out of there and almost, admit, well, very soon afterwards, it was the final straw for him. Maybe it was one rebuke too many. The demon screamed on the inside and he went to the Pharisees to sell off Jesus. 
for 30 pieces of silver. And the tragedy is that the Pharisees said yes. And the Pharisees also planned to kill Lazarus as well while they were at it. The demon of murder, the demon of greed. And you see, it was this greed for money and the greed for power that eventually killed both parties. Judas, as you know, ended his own life by his own hand just a few days later. And the Pharisees, the vast majority of them were killed by the hands of the Romans at the fall of Jerusalem only a few decades later in what can almost aptly be described as the most hellish siege in history. Both sides, Judas and the Pharisees, summoned the shadow of death as they dreamed their greed-filled dreams that particular night after the dinner. After the dinner. And yet the one figure who towers above all of them is the kneeling figure of Mary. Mary shows us what devotion looks like. How do, how do you think she felt when she washed up afterwards, after the big, big dinner? I reckon she'd feel vindicated. I think she'd feel that way. I think she would look back and she would think about Jesus and the fact that she saw, maybe when no one else did, just how intensely and powerfully personal Jesus was. Jesus cared for her. He became her friend. He even gave her back her brother. And in a couple of days' time, within a week or so, he would even give her life for her and for the rest of humanity. Mary imperfectly saw this. And so, with what she had, she devoted herself to Jesus and responded generously. And that's the part of her memory today, as history remembers her. And you know now how the others are remembered, for better and for worse. But how will you be remembered? How will you be remembered in eternity? Because you will be. How will you be remembered? Will you be remembered as someone who responded to the generous God? Did you respond to Him generously? Everyone on earth has a relationship with Jesus Christ, one way or the other. How's yours going to be remembered? What impact will your relationship have, whether in opposition to him or in allegiance with him? You're going to answer that question this week. Not out loud, but you're going to answer that question this week. We, we all will, as you live your life, consciously or unconsciously. And my prayer for you is that you will do whatever it takes to adjust and take your level of love and generosity to God um, to the next level in whatever that looks like in your circumstance. That's my challenge to you today. And I truly believe that's God's challenge to you today as well, to take it up a notch, whatever that looks like, because He's taken it up a notch for you and He will always take it up a notch for you because that's the sort of relational, loving God who will vindicate you on the last day. That's the sort of thing He does. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the epitome of generosity. You gave your life for each one of us. And your voice is the voice that doesn't lead us to death or to the end of our rope. Your voice is the one that leads to life and hope and truth and happiness. Lord, you break us from the slavery of bank accounts and watches. And you show us what it looks like to truly be free. So Jesus, I ask that today you will guide us in that space. 
We don't want to be generous like Mary. We want to be more generous than Mary in whatever that looks like. Give us guidance and wisdom in how that looks. And as you do that, and as things happen in the atmosphere around us, in our lives and in our homes and in our workplaces, may you get all the credit and may we get all the joy. We ask you for this, dear Jesus, in your name. Amen.